Hello everyone, welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. We'll return to the ongoing series Better Know a Procedure with a focus this time on the pancreaticoduodenectomy, also known as the Whipple Procedure. We'll cover the history of the operation and, of course, delve into the story of the surgeon behind it, Dr. Alan Oldfather Whipple. His life story and his other contributions to surgery and medicine are worth learning about. So we'll cover all that and more in this episode of Legends of Surgery. So like always, we'll start with a little background on the life of our subject before getting into the details of his impact on the history of surgery. Alan Oldfather Whipple had a unique beginning to his life. He was born September 2, 1881 to missionary parents William Levi and Mary Louise Whipple in Ermia, West Azerbaijan, Iran, which was then part of Persia. They belonged to the Presbyterian Church, a tradition within Protestantism. The name comes from their form of church government, an assembly of elders. The root word is from the Greek word presbys, meaning old man, or the Latin presbyter, meaning an elder, which leads us to a medical connection. There is an ophthalmological condition called presbyopia, which is farsightedness caused by a loss of elasticity of the lens of the eye, which occurs with aging. Now, farsightedness, for those like me who get the terminology a bit confused, means unable to see things clearly up close. This typically requires reading glasses to correct. So presbyopia comes from presbys, again meaning old man, and ops from the Greek for eye. Old man eyes. Now you know. So Whipple had an unusual childhood, learning English, French, Armenian, Syriac, Turkish, and Persian, a.k.a. Farsi, and developed a lifelong interest in the culture, religion, and medicine of the Middle East. We'll come back to that near the end of his story. After spending the first 14 years of his life there, Whipple moved to the U.S. where his parents were from. Shortly thereafter, his father passed away. Alan went to Princeton, where he would tutor his classmates in Latin to help pay his way through school. He continued his interest in the Middle East, taking elective courses in Arabic, and graduated in 1904. From there, he earned his medical degree from Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons in New York, completing his studies in 1908. Now, Whipple was originally going to study medicine at Johns Hopkins, but was lured to the College of Physicians and Surgeons, or PNS as it's known, by George Sumner Huntington, Columbia's great anatomist, who offered him a prosectorship. Now, for those with some medical background that recognized the name, this was, in fact, not the George Huntington who described Huntington's disease, also known as Huntington's chorea, a hereditary progressive brain disorder. Quick side note, this disease was originally just called chorea due to the involuntary spasmodic movements of the limbs and facial muscles. Chorea comes from the Greek word chorea, meaning dance, as the victims of the disease seem to be dancing. Now, the same root word gives us the modern word Choreography, the sequence of steps and moves in a dance. Okay, so back to Whipple. After three years of interning at Roosevelt and Sloan Hospitals in New York, he was appointed to the staff of the PNS faculty and Presbyterian Hospital in 1911-1912. And by 1921, he'd made his way up to chairman of surgery at Presbyterian Hospital, where he stayed until 1946. And from 1946 to 1951, he was the clinical director of Memorial Hospital in New York, which would eventually become part of the world-famous Memorial Sloan Kettering Institute. There, he focused on reorganizing the surgical training program prior to his retirement. Okay, so now let's talk about his achievements. The main two areas that Whipple is known for are his eponymous operation, the Whipple's procedure, which is for the removal of the head of the pancreas, and for its description of insulin-secreting tumors of the pancreas and their clinical presentations, including the three cardinal features which are referred to as Whipple's triad. 
We'll cover both of these topics, then get into a little bit of interesting minutia about this famous surgeon. So let's talk a little bit about the pancreas first, and trace some of the early history of surgery on it that led up to Whipple. As we've seen throughout the podcast, major discoveries don't come out of the blue, but are typically a result of hard work, dedication, and drive built on a foundation of previous knowledge and discovery. The pancreas, for those that aren't familiar, is an organ in the body that has two main functions, to produce enzymes that assist digestion, and to produce hormones which control blood sugar. This will be important later, so we'll come back to that. A quick side note, Galen, the great Roman physician whose word was essentially law in the medical world for over a thousand years, postulated that the purpose of the pancreas was to act as padding and protect the large blood vessels immediately behind it. Oops. Now, the name pancreas, first used by the Greek philosopher and scientist Aristotle and later by the Greek anatomist and surgeon Herophilison, comes from the Greek words pan, meaning all, and creus, meaning flesh or meat. So, all flesh. Well, what does that mean? Well, the pancreas, among other glands, are called sweetbreads from a culinary perspective, so the organ having a uniform consistency is entirely meat. It's located deep in the abdomen, behind the stomach, and in front of the spine, with its head lying next to the curve of the duodenum, the first part of the small bowel. This location makes it notoriously difficult to access. One paper I read referred to an old saying that I thought was amusing. Quote, God placed the pancreas in the back as he did not want anyone to mess with it, end quote. Now, the history of surgeons doing just that, operating on the pancreas, is so extensive that it could be the subject of an entire podcast or two on its own. So let's just review some of the highlights to put Dr. Whipple's achievements in perspective. It should be noted that the pancreas has a head, which is next to the curve of the duodenum, a body, and a tail. Now, the body and tail are far easier to access surgically, as there's no need to reconstruct the bile duct, which runs through the head of the pancreas, or the pancreatic duct, which runs the length of the pancreas, or the small bowel, as that portion of the duodenum must also come out when removing the head. The first solid tumor removed from the pancreas was by Dr. Frederick Trendelenburg, and I'll cover him in a future podcast, when he excised a lesion from the tail of the pancreas in a patient in 1882. Now, from then until 1905, only 24 distal pancreatectomies, or removal of the tail, were performed by 21 different surgeons. Partial removal of the head of the pancreas was attempted by Dr. Giuseppe Rugi in 1889 and by Dr. Domenico Biondi in 1894. But the first recorded removal of the head of the pancreas in duodenum was by the Italian surgeon Alessandro Codavilla in 1898. He used a Rouen Y construction afterwards, see podcast 40 on the procedure. The patient developed was probably a pancreatic fistula and died post-op day 21. Now, Dr. William Halstead, see podcast 35, just five days after Cotavella's procedure performed the first successful resection of a periampulary cancer at Johns Hopkins. Now let's take a minute for some more anatomy and my apologies in advance. So the liver makes bile, which is stored in the gallbladder, and the bile travels down the common bile duct, which runs through the head of the pancreas, meets up with the pancreatic duct near the duodenum, and then the joint duct opens into the duodenum, sending bile and enzymes, remember one of the jobs of the pancreas, into the small bowel to aid digestion. The joint duct is called the ampulla of water, or the hepatopancreatic ampulla. Now, ampulla refers to a dilated part of a duct or other channel. and comes from the Latin amphora, a type of Roman bottle with a narrow neck. And water is from the German anatomist Abraham Vater. It's not pronounced Vader, and it's certainly not the same as Darth Vader. Different spelling. So Halstead removed a tumor that was growing around the area of the ampulla, taking a wedge-shaped part of the duodenum where the ampulla lies and part of the ducts approaching from the duodenum. 
so not yet a classic head of the pancreas removal. So next up is German surgeon Walter Kausch, who did the first successful partial removal of the head of the pancreas and duodenum, again for a periampillary tumor like Halstead. Now he did this in two stages, which needs a brief explanation. Now these periampillary tumors tend to come to clinical attention because they block the bile and enzymes from entering the small bowel, and patients develop what is known as jaundice, where they turn yellow from bile backup and can get inflammation of the pancreas, among other symptoms. The patients are often very sick. So the first step is to relieve the obstruction by connecting a part of the small bowel past the obstruction, usually the middle part of the small bowel called the jejunum, to the gallbladder, a so-called cholecystojejunostomy. The tumor itself was then removed in a second operation two months later. So this two-stage idea will be important later. Although somewhat successful, the patient would survive for nine months, it was only attempted successfully twice more over the next two decades. Now, in 1929, Dr. Roscoe Graham, see podcast 27, was the first to completely remove an insulinoma showing that pancreatic tumors could be treated successfully with surgery. Now, remember, the other function of the pancreas is to secrete hormones that control blood sugar, and insulin is one of these. This success reignited interest in curative surgery on the pancreas. So now enter Whipple. In 1935, he published his landmark paper called The Treatment of Carcinoma of the Ampullo of Vater, in which he describes his experience from 1927 to 1935, performing a two-stage technique for radical resection of these tumors. Now, just five years later, he performed the first recorded successful one-stage procedure for removing the entire head of the pancreas and duodenum, and we're now approaching the modern concept of the Whipple's procedure. Now, the way this came about was unplanned and sort of accidental. Here's the story. In 1940, he was giving an amphitheater demonstration to distinguished American and foreign visiting surgeons on a patient thought to have gastric cancer, or cancer of the stomach. So partway through, Whipple was, quote, astonished and chagrined, end quote, to discover that the patient really had a pancreatic cancer. So he had to improvise on the spot, essentially creating the Whipple procedure in real time, removing part of the stomach, duodenum, pancreas, and common bile duct in an impromptu conversion to a one-stage operation. Now this was possible because the patient was not jaundiced, so Whipple felt comfortable skipping the first step, which was to relieve obstruction. The patient recovered uneventfully and was found to have a non-functioning islet cell carcinoma, which are the cells that make insulin. She lived for nine years, eventually succumbing to metastatic disease. Now, during his lifetime, Whipple performed 37 pancreaticoduodenectomies, all of which were done on tumors of the common bile duct and ampullo of water. His success was attributed to careful technique and the use of fine silk sutures. One of the complications from previous pancreatic surgeries was that the cat gut sutures used would be dissolved by pancreatic juices. So as well, he avoided anastomosis of the pancreas, meaning to sew the pancreatic duct to the bowel so that it would continue to function. Rather, he would just tie off the pancreatic duct with suture. Now, he had a very low leak rate from the pancreas for the era, around 10 to 20%. The Whipple operation has been modified greatly both during and since his time, including adding anastomosis of the pancreas. I'll post some pictures on Twitter to give some idea of what's involved. Now today, the Whipple procedure is mainly used for carcinoma of the head of the pancreas, and somewhat ironically, Whipple himself never operated on this type of tumor, stating in his original description of the operation that not all tumors in the region can be resected. So now let's talk about the other major pancreas-related illness Whipple is known for. As mentioned before, the pancreas is responsible for producing insulin, which is the hormone that drives sugar from the bloodstream and into the tissues. Tumors can form that produce excess insulin, called insulinomas, and this causes a number of symptoms due to low blood sugar. Whipple described the cardinal features of an insulinoma in a paper entitled 
The Surgical Therapy of Hyperinsulinism in the Journal Internationale de Chirurgie in 1938, and these features have become known as Whipple's triad. So let's go through it. Okay, one, symptoms of hypoglycemia, or low blood sugar, which are many, but may include syncope, meaning essentially fainting, shakiness, sweating, confusion, and others, especially after fasting or exercise. Two, low plasma glucose levels measured at the time of symptoms. And three, relief of symptoms after administration of intravenous glucose. In an era before high-quality imaging was available, these criteria would be used to determine if a patient had an insulinoma and therefore needed to be operated upon. Now, so now that we've covered the main things that are named for Dr. Allen Old Father Whipple, we should clear up some confusion. Some listeners may be familiar with the Whipple's disease, a rare systemic infection by the bacteria called Trophorema whipplei. But this was named after the Nobel Prize-winning American pathologist George Hoyt Whipple, not our Allen Old Father Whipple, the surgeon. Now, although the two were not related, they were lifelong friends. Amazingly, they met in 1914 when George returned from a visit to Panama, gravely ill with malaria, and was looked after at the Presbyterian Hospital in New York by a young intern, none other than Alan Old Father Whipple. So let me share some accounts of what our Whipple was like on a personal level. He's been described as a master surgeon, deeply religious, warmly human, benevolent, modest, and great-hearted. One description of him went like this. He had the ability to, quote, cut through unessentials to get to the heart of the matter, end quote. In the operating room, he would instruct his assistants to vary tempo by using musical terms, andante to play in a moderately slow tempo, meaning slow down, and allegro to play at a brisk tempo, meaning speed up. And I thought this was funny. Witnesses recall his cursing in the OR to be limited to things like darn, tarnation, and occasionally muttering, oh dear, oh dear. He was, of course, involved in a lot of training and teaching of students and residents in surgery. Now, I wonder if any listeners remember me mentioning Whipple in a previous podcast. Now, if not, I'll refresh your memory. In episode 38 for an International Women's Day, I talked a bit about Dr. Virginia Apgar. A bright young medical student, Virginia wanted to pursue a career in surgery, beginning a surgical internship at Columbia University in 1933. Now, Whipple was the surgery department chair at the time and advised her to switch to anesthesia. Now, was this sexism on the part of Whipple? A number of sources actually credit his advice to a few extenuating circumstances. The first is that the program had already produced four female surgeons, none of whom had been able to establish successful practices. The second is that anesthesia was a relatively new specialty, and there were very few physicians working in the field full-time, only about 159 in all of the U.S. in 1934. Whipple wanted her to be able to find work and wanted the field to grow and mature, something that the surgical advances of the era desperately needed. And maybe it was for the best as she devised the APGAR score, a method for quickly assessing the health of a newborn, which is now used worldwide. Now, as mentioned earlier, his fascination with the Middle East continued throughout his life, with a number of publications which focused on the role of Middle Eastern cultures in the history of medicine. In 1936, he presented a paper to the Section of Historical and Cultural Medicine of the New York Academy of Medicine, which was also published, entitled Role of the Nestorians as the Connecting Link Between Greek and Arabic Medicine. This is actually available online, and it's a fascinating read, and it covers the Christian sect called the Nestorians that dominated the Mesopotamian schools in what is now Turkey and Iran from the 3rd to 7th centuries CE. Another publication, entitled The Story of Wound Healing and Wound Repair, which covered the development of surgical techniques dating back to 2980 BCE, was published just one month before his death. 
As well in retirement, he worked at and served as a trustee of the American University of Beirut in Lebanon. Whipple was instrumental in founding the American Board of Surgery, acted as trustee of Princeton University, and was the recipient of the 1958 Woodrow Wilson Award given by the Alumni Association of Princeton for contributions in the nation's service. Now here's another award I found out about, which I only came across in one source and had trouble verifying, but it's simply too interesting to not share, although apparently Whipple himself didn't like to show it off. I'm sure most people have heard of the Hindenburg disaster, but let me give you a quick refresher. The Hindenburg was a German passenger rigid airship, also called a Zeppelin, which burst into flames on May 6, 1937, while landing at Lakehurst, New Jersey. 35 of the 97 people on board were killed, along with one ground worker. Now, interesting side note, these were normally filled with the inert gas helium, but due to American helium export restrictions against Nazi Germany, the Hindenburg was filled with hydrogen, which is more combustible. Anyways, Whipple helped to care for four burn victims from the explosion. Berlin sent word that no Jewish blood was to be used in their care. All four survived, partly due to the banked blood they received, and Adolf Hitler himself sent Whipple the medal. Now, Alan Oldfather Whipple died April 6, 1963, in his home in Princeton, New Jersey, tragically just eight days after the death of his son. His other son died in a motor vehicle accident at the age of 16. He leaves behind an extensive legacy, not just in surgery, but in his impact on those that he trained and on our better understanding of diseases of the pancreas. So that wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. The next episode will cover a surgeon sometimes referred to as the father of pediatric surgery. Now, the timing is intentional as well, as the episode comes out very close to the 100th anniversary of the Halifax explosion, a disaster that was said to have greatly influenced Lad's career. Tune in to learn more. In the meantime, please rate the show wherever you download podcasts and leave a comment there, or follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends, like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery, or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes. And as always, thanks for listening.